Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. And so I thought about it in that same way. It's not going to die that light. If we neglect it, it'll be there. But if we actually nurture it, we can not just survive, but flourish. Hello, and welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today, we welcome Sharon Salzberg to the show. Sharon is a meditation pioneer, a world-renowned teacher, and New York Times bestselling author. She's the co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society, Her podcast, The Meta Hour, has amassed 6 million downloads and features interviews with thought leaders from the mindfulness movement and beyond. Her latest book is called Real Life, The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom. In this episode, I talked to Sharon Salzberg about navigating real life. When we are faced with trials and tribulations, it feels as if we're alone. On top of that, our underlying assumptions about the world and ourselves can make us feel worse. Sharon shares useful tips that can help us deal with overwhelming emotions and pain. She believes that by cultivating these loving-kindness practices, it can help us feel more open and free, allowing our inner lights to shine forth. On a personal note, this was a really amazing interview. I really love Sharon, and I mean really. She's a really wonderful human, and every time I talk to her, I feel her love and openness, and it makes me want to be a better person. So without further ado... I bring you my dear friend, Sharon Salzberg. Hello, Sharon. It's so <laughs> How good are to you? see you. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. So good to see you too. And huge congratulations on the publication of your new book. Thank you so much. Real life. Beautiful. Oh, you Beautiful. have the book I book. That. I don't even have the book book. I do. Wow. What? Really? Yeah, I have galleys. You, sh- you should. Yeah. You should have a copy. Well, uh, it's beautiful. And I know there's a 
poor, there's a part in the book where you said that you went through a period where you were like, I don't know if I have anything more to say after 10 books. And maybe you had some self-doubt. Well, I can assure you that it's, uh, it's a very timely book with a lot of new information. Wow. Thank you so much. That means a lot. No, that's great. Yeah. Uh, this idea of going from, it's interesting because you have, uh, you have a couple froms to things. <laughs> One is from isolation to openness. That's interesting. I'm just curious why you put that as your subtitle when your book focuses on constriction to expansion. Uh, what, 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 I feel like something changed last second in the subtitle. Am I wrong? <laughs> no, I think you're, you're correct. I think it was partly, you know, the, the, the basic model, the basic scheme is going from feeling constricted and trapped and kind of mm. overwhelmed, like defined by the circumstances of our lives to a state where we see options, where we feel open, we feel more unconfined, less constrained. And, and I think the, the word constriction is just not a popular word. And, and everyone, oh, yeah. you know, I wrote this book entirely <laughs> during the pandemic, like the height of the pandemic. Yeah. I wasn't traveling anywhere. I was hardly seeing anybody. And uh, not everyone, but many people were experiencing quite a lot of isolation. And that, that just seemed a more relevant example for people. Great. So regardless of what we call it, isolation, openness, or constriction, expansiveness, there is a journey that you take the reader on. And in a lot of ways, it's to deal with real life. Um, do you feel like there was ever a point in your life, Sharon, where you kind of woke up and you're like, wow, uh, this is life. Not what I expected it to be, but here we are. This is it. I think that's happened repeatedly for me. I mean, that's one of the points I make. I'm going to actually quote you in, in, <laughs> in quoting Maslow that these, these journeys are, are rarely linear. You know, that we go up and down, we feel ebbs and flows, we are going forward, then we fall down, and we have to pick ourselves up or let others help us up, we go on again. Uh, we're working on self-actualization, and suddenly we're insecure, and we're like way back there, yeah. you know, like, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like that. So I would say, yeah, repeatedly, and because we have so many images, you know, uh, the the most immediate example in terms of the writing of this book was... You know, I traveled all of February 2020 in California and got back to New York City in early March. I went and taught a retreat um, for a few days. Uh, then I was teaching in New York City the morning of March uh, 9th, 2020, and and people were so anxious and things were bad. You know, they were they were getting a whole lot worse too in terms of COVID and and. There was so much anxiety, so much fear, so much uncertainty. And, and I had the thought, you know, I think I'll go up to Barry, Mass, where the retreat center I co-founded, the Insight Meditation Society is, and I have a house right next door. I said to myself, I think I'll go up to Barry and ride it out for two weeks. You know, and yeah, right. I, I came up here, and of course it was years, you know. And so uh, yeah. life is always dealing us kind of uncertainty. And, and many times I've said to myself, this is how it actually is. It's not the way I imagined it would be, or, um, but this is how it is. You say the quality of our lives can be limited by the thought patterns that produce much of our constriction, such as unexamined assumptions. Is there an idea there that a lot of our own suffering is in our, our own hands? Is that a theme that runs through your book? I think that there's a certain degree of our suffering that is in our hands. I 
I also take a, a really firm stand that something's just hurt. You know, it's not because we have the wrong attitude. It's not because we have right. disordered thinking. You know, it's not because we need to. A broken arm hurts. A broken arm hurts. A broken heart hurts, you know. And a broken heart Losing heart, somebody yeah. hurts. And, yeah. you know, uh, something's just hurt. And people are so kind of unjust, I find, toward themselves. Yeah. Almost yeah. by insisting, like, I should be better. Or, Look at me. You know, I've been meditating for 50 years now. You know, yeah. I should be calm in all circumstances. I should be, you know. And so uh, it's so unfair, really. It's so some things do just hurt. But. I think there's a layer of extra suffering we do not have to endure. And, and that is something that is about assumption and interpretation. And uh, I am the only one. I'm the only one who ever feels this, or this is the only thing I'll ever feel, or this is my fault. You know, I should have been able to control all of life and the universe and not have this happen. And so we kind of pile on and we're not holding that original hurt in a compassionate light or, or with any spaciousness, you know, it's uh, a lot of interpretation, a lot of stuff and that we don't need yeah. really. Yeah. We don't need that. That's uh, it's like suffering twice in a way, as people have said, you suffer first and then you're suffering again with your own hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, th this, this book really equips people with tools to deal with real life and boy, what do people need it right now? I want to talk about some of these exercises because they are so valuable. I, I actually taught my students one on the uh, feeling emotions, shaking hands yeah, one. Yeah. Um, I absolutely love that. Can, can, we, can you kind of explain that one, that exercise a little bit, how it can help us deal with difficult emotions? Well, the um, kind of the basic uh, nature of mindfulness practice is one where we can open to what is present in the moment, what's genuinely happening, and hold it differently than we normally do. Like sometimes our experience is painful, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain, and we do not like it. All that stuff I just talked about, you know, we dump on top of it. We're ashamed of what we feel. We're trying to hide from it, or we want to push it away. Um, that's one extreme. And the other extreme is we kind of dive right into it, and we, we become it in a way. We let it define the entirety of our being. And we talk about mindfulness as being a place in the middle where we can connect fully to what's happening, hmm. not pushing it away and adding like shame and things like that, and also not getting enveloped by it. So that you might call right relationship. And in that relationship, we have the opportunity to learn and to, to see more deeply and to have compassion and, and so on. So a, a very kind of nice way, more poetic way of, Describing that is from one of my Tibetan teachers, Sonny Rinpoche, who called it shake, shake hands. And he described those states, our fear, our jealousy, our greed, as beautiful monsters. And these beautiful monsters will appear just in the nature of things. And rather than freak out about it or feel defensive or say, um, yes, you know, you are the only truth I will ever know, you like shake its hand, you accompany it. An equivalent exercise we've done sometimes is uh, also from the Tibetan tradition. They would say, if you're sitting at home and maybe minding your own business and you hear a knock at the door and you open the door and there's greed or there's jealousy or there's fear, invite them in for a meal. Don't give them the run of the house because 
they'll steal the silverware or something. But you don't have to be so upset and so diminished, feel so diminished in the face of this state. In a way, it's it's almost like saying your awareness is stronger. It's big enough. Or maybe in psychological terms, you can tell me, you would say, you're an adult now. This feels terrifying because when you were two, when you first sort of inscribed it, it was a question of survival. Now you can handle it, actually. It's different now, even though it's intense when it arises, nonetheless. You know, so invited in for a meal. And uh, so be hospitable, be calm in the face of it, recognize it for what it is, have a little kindness, you know, like there's a reason yeah. you're here probably. And I, I described that once in a class I was teaching and someone in the room didn't like it. So I said, well, how about, really? I said, how about invite them in for tea? And they said, how about tea to go? And I said, okay, that's the extent of the hospitality you wish to engender. That's fine. But it, it's all about finding that place in the middle uh, because we yeah. can. And we can forgive ourselves for what we're feeling. We don't have to say, you know, I'm like despicable for having this arise again. Um, and at the same time, we don't have to be dominated by it. You know, your approach is so lovely. Thank you. <laughs> it's um full of love. Loveful. Your approach is so loveful. <laughs> I'm just, I'm going to invent that word. Um, and... There's so much coldness in this world today. There's so people are treating each other with so much um, cruelty. Mm -hmm. If 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 they feel someone else doesn't agree with them, you know, even just like differing opinions and um, you know, politics is a mess right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't I don't have to tell you that. And people don't see it in themselves. They don't they don't see that they need any of this. They 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 point the finger and say, oh, that person needs it. That person needs it. What what advice would you have for, for us all to look within ourselves and with a critical examination, but with that willfulness you talk about? Well, suffering is so often the key, isn't it? You know, like um, sometimes the suffering is intense. It's graphic. Sometimes it's more subtle. It's, it's kind of more pervasive, but it's often some kind of dissatisfaction. And I think not only are there kind of wild opinions going on right now, but there's a certain self-satisfaction also that is prevalent. Moral like, superiority. Like, Moral superiority. We posted right. something, I don't remember even what, on the internet that had the subtitle of the book. and had the title of the book and then the subtitle, uh, Journey from Isolation <laughs> to, <laughs> to Openness and Freedom. And somebody wrote me, and it was the oddest thing. It's like, don't you know that the isolation people have experienced was all an artifact of New York real estate brokers trying to change the price of, of real estate. And I was kind of stunned. And I thought, yeah, wow. what advantage was it in your mind to people with money, you know, with, with power position to drive prices down, you know, like, and yet it was something, you know, and, and something I should do something about, you know, which was like really outrageous, you know, and, and it's, it's very hard to, have communication in a way that feels genuine or authentic in positionality, you know, in times of positionality. But in terms of our own situation, you know, we can, we can look at our reactions. We can look at our um, holding, uh, holding, 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 you know, like uh, the ways we grasp onto 
views, which is not to say that I believe all views are equal, you know, mm. but yeah. um, there's a certain way in which we stop really listening. We only see the person as a kind of object in some way. And it would be, I think, ever more powerful to really listen to one another, even if we're not going to agree. And I don't feel the impetus to agree, really. No, which is not to say I'm never wrong, because sometimes I am wrong, but just to, to get a sense of the humanity of somebody. Um, you know, what what is this serving? Like something I, I wrote about and, and have learned about in Buddhist psychology and also in Western psychology is, you know, so many of these states um, are adaptations. They were something that maybe served well when we were two years old or we were young or we were hurt. Um, and and there are old habits now and something we reach to as, as like our go-to place, but it's not relevant anymore to, you know, only feel a kind of a need to be superior or an excessive reliance on righteousness or or something like that. Maybe it helped us survive once even. You know, and in Buddhist psychology, we'd say that about grasping. We'd say that about hatred. Mm. We'd say that about fear. We'd say that about delusion, and delusion being a kind of cocoon of numbness, you know. Maybe came in very handy, you know, a time or two in life, but you don't want it to be your steady state. No. Uh, what about shame? I, I can't see any value for it. I understand guilt. I just don't see value for shame. I wonder yeah, how it evolved. Yeah. Sort of, I had to learn sort of the Western psychological framework. You know, in yeah. in the Buddhist psychology, they would say the helpful state or the skillful state they call remorse, which is painful. You know, there's a beautiful quotation from the Buddha where he said, "If you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another." You know, so when we recollect the things we maybe did or said or held back from doing or saying, we can feel that kind of lack of self-love that was at yeah. the root of it. And it's very painful. But that pain is useful because we can feel it and recognize, I don't want to go back there. I don't really want to do that again or again and again. And maybe we need to make amends or maybe we just need to resolve, like to try to, to be better, to be different. Whereas guilt is what they call the state that's just this kind of uh, incessant self-hatred, you know, just like going over and over and over and over what we did or what we said. And we can't move on because we're just stuck there. So it was like a learning process for me to see that the words are used differently in yeah. Western psychology where guilt is more recognition that act was wrong. And shame is more wholesale condemnation, like, I am wrong. I am bad. And it's not that helpful. You know, was it helpful ever? I don't know. It seems like it makes you want to hide. That might have been a good idea sometimes, you know, hiding. Yeah. But um, as a state, it's really kind of like a lacerating self-hatred. And it's just, it's just well, not onward leading. Did, did you say onward leading? Yeah, it's not onward leading. It's not... Yeah, it's not I like, like a, that um, phrase. Yeah. I like that. It's a very yeah. old-fashioned Buddhist phrase. You know, it's not It's <laughs> yeah. not um, going to help. Yeah. Yeah. Future-oriented. Yeah. Wow. Uh, do, do you have an exercise to help people when they feel shame coming up? Or maybe any of the ones that help with difficult emotions? 
Yeah, well, it's the same. I mean, it's it's hard. You know, some things are harder than others, and we have to understand that. But shaking hands, you know, invite the shaman. In that case, I would say a cup of tea. A meal might be a little much, you know, but mm-hmm. recognize it. See if you can name it. Naming always helps. Every time your mind, your thought pattern says, this is bad, this is wrong, this shouldn't be here, I spent all that money in therapy, it should be gone, or meditating all these years, it should be gone. I actually retranslate that in my own head, and I say, don't see it as wrong, see it as painful. This is a state of pain. This is a painful state, and it's so devastating, it's so debilitating, it's not going to help. You know, okay. and, and I sometimes I quote the Buddha to myself, like, uh, if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. So the antidote is not to love yourself less, right? It's mm-hmm. a it's a call. It's a crying out to love yourself more. And I remind myself of that. Man, you know, people who are prone to feelings of shame tend to feel not a lot of love for themselves. They tend to, these things correlate, you know, they kind of feel broken at the core or, or to keep it more real, um, you know, they may feel like not worthy, Mm -hmm. you know, of love. Yeah. I mean, there are exercises too. They're not necessarily easy, but they're very, very powerful, like loving kindness um, or gratitude. Yeah. If you're in the habit, as most of us are likely to be, say at the end of the day, to like evaluate yourself, like how did I do today? And if you pretty well only remember the mistakes you made and what you did wrong and all of that, you could actually ask yourself with some sense of humor even, anything else happened today? Like anything good in my yeah. life, you know? Um, because our minds, are, our attention is not going to go there most of us, automatically. And so it takes Mm. not force or coercion, but intentionality. Like, what about this that I continually overlook? We practice loving kindness for ourselves. We practice receiving the loving kindness of others, which can feel absolutely horrible for a while, you know, like, no, don't look at me. But over time, it actually, there's a kind of healing that, that does happen. It's also true that I think some life practices like generosity or or doing yeah. something good for someone else unites us with a part of ourselves that's not the the idiot you know that we usually think we are yeah. um and is it's kind of holds us up in a, a sort of different level of self respect so there are really a lot of practices that one can do the mind wanders and that's just what it does right it does it a lot uh when people are going through really difficult circumstances i think it's fair to acknowledge that it's harder for them mm-hmm. to concentrate even on their breath you know just to even do mm-hmm. the exercises mm-hmm. i feel like there's even a more compassionate not a more but there is a compassionate sort of understanding that especially when you're under difficult circumstances the kind of activities you should be not should, but that would could help you. It's harder to do them. It's harder to do them. Mm-hmm. Does, it, does what I'm saying make sense? Um, yes, and so, yeah. you know, I think there are different levels I I experience in trying to approach that. One okay, is right. you know trying to if you want to you know inculcate a practice when things are not so hard. 
so that when things are hard, it's almost like strength training. You know, then you've got some sense of inner resource with which to meet what's going on. And I was interviewed years ago for is ironically Good Housekeeping magazine, which if you could see behind the screen, you would find as funny as all my friends. And uh, what I had to say never made it into the interview. But the question was something like, how would you use mindfulness in a time of complete crisis? And what I said was, I wouldn't wait. Don't wait. Many people do wait, and it can be useful even then, but it's like the yeah. day after day after day, even boring, kind of steady application of awareness and, and balance and so on. So then when the bottom falls out of your life, you've got some resource with which to meet it. So that that's just one possible approach. And the other is to understand it's like, um, you know, we can have very circumscribed ideas of practice. You don't have to be sitting like a pretzel, you know, in some weird pose. Yeah. Your eyes don't need to be closed. Uh, you don't need to be still. You could be in movement. You could be outside. You could be, you know, drinking a cup of tea. You could be washing dishes. It's just some moments of landing in your own experience and, and feeling it. And for some people, it's not going to be that helpful to be alone. You know, there's just a lot of support in uh, doing any kind of exercise in the context of a community. and you know, it, it would be a lot easier. Yeah. And well, in terms of community, a big theme in your book is connection and how the need for connection is a really profound human need. I just bumped up a screen capture I, I took from reading your book and I was texting back and forth with my friend Susan Kane about this because we both love this page. And by the way, Susan says, uh, it, it says, give, give her a hug for me. <laughs> I told her I was talking to you right now. She said, give her a hug That's for so me. That's so great. Um, but but um, this page, you write, when we connect with others, we don't lose ourselves, we find ourselves. Holy cow. We find the voice within that isn't overcome by fear, though that, though that may be in the room, or by unworthiness, though that may be there too. We find the voice born of recognizing a bigger sense of possibility, which urges us to engage without the certainty of definite immediate reward, et cetera, et cetera. I, I go on and on and on, but I love that I sentiment. I do know that when I'm feeling a, a connection with another fellow human being, I definitely feel more connected to myself. Mm -hmm. And that's a fascinating phenomenon. You know, it's fascinating. You know, so sometimes you, you may kind of paradoxically think that you will kind of lose yourself if you're, you know, in the love experience mm -hmm. or in, the, in, in a flow state with another person. But I don't really find I lose myself. I mean, uh, I feel like I'm just very much in touch with it. It's interesting. Yeah, well, you know, and speaking of Susan Cain and introverts and, and such <laughs> such worlds, you know, like uh, even before the pandemic, when I would hear about like an epidemic of loneliness in many places in the world, and I used to read these studies of different clinical conditions and how social connection could be a strong healing force in those conditions. Mm. And I, I kept thinking, well, it can't just be like a numbers game, right? Like I only have four friends, I need eight. You know, it has to be some sense of interconnection because I and, and probably everybody listening, you know, knows someone who lives a fairly solitary life but seems immensely connected mm. to the world, you know, and they thank people, like doing service for them, little deeds that 
many of us might look right through rather than look at, and they have a sense of the interconnectedness of life, and uh, they care about the planet in a way, you know, a bigger way, and and they don't seem cut off or alone, even though they're, you know, their numbers may not suit, like, in terms of uh, intimate buddies or something like that. And so there's something incredibly powerful. It has something to do, I think, with belonging. You know, yeah, when so we too. connect, then then it, it leads right back to that somehow. Yeah, but I also think that connection incorporates belonging and intimacy, and they're not always the same thing. Mm -hmm. I try to separate the two from each other in my book, Transcend, because I think a lot of times we can feel like a sense of belonging to something, but not feel like there's a mutually reciprocal mm -hmm. uh, con connection, a deep, uh, a, what's called a high quality connection mm -hmm. in psychology. It seems to me like you're really focusing on high quality connections. Mm -hmm. and uh, Well, sometimes yeah, there's not a um, satisfying reciprocal response, right? And it's just definitely like yeah. the nature of life and disappointment. And yes. So on. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, I'm so glad that you mentioned connection in your book. It's just beautiful. Uh, and you also talk about the light within us all. You know, you made me think of the those guys who go in and teach yoga and mindfulness in inner city schools. Don't they? Isn't the title of their book uh, the light? Yeah, is it what the yeah. light within? The holistic yeah. life foundation. They're they're my great friends, yeah. and they're awesome. Yeah, they're awesome. They're, they're awesome yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, it just you made me think of that when you talk about the light within in your own book. Mm -hmm. um, can can you talk a little about how people can get in touch with that light within themselves? Well, the, the part of the book where I talk about that light is actually one of my favorite aspects of the book, which uh, mm. is some, well, it starts out actually by talking about this very, very old study where um, every resident of a nursing home was given a plant and half of them were told, you've got to take care of the plant. You've got to notice when it needs water. You've got to move it in and out of the sun, whatever. And the other half of the residents were told, Here's a plant. Just enjoy it. You don't have to do anything. The nursing staff's just going to take care of the plant. And then after some time, they compared these two groups. And it turned out that the ones who were needing to respond to the plant were uh, living far longer, and they were doing better health-wise and orientation-wise and so on. And it's always been considered as a, as a study in controlled decision-making, being able to control your environment. But I read it, you know, and right away I thought, well, that's like loving kindness, you know. That's that yeah. sense of, of, you could say, intimacy or care, caring. And so I always I always saw it as that. And then I went on to talk about, since I have personally never kept a plant alive, not once in all these years, I just, it doesn't work. You're not alone. Yeah, you know, but <laughs> people do. Uh, I read about all these plants where you can neglect them and they will live anyway. <laughs> You know, by and large, you know, and that uh, there's something very hearty about them. But yeah. uh, the description that I was reading ended by saying, that is true, but if you actually nurture them, they will do more than just survive. They will flourish. And that led me to thinking about the light within, which is a very classic Buddhist conceptualization, that the light within is not, it's not a fully realized state. It's like a seed form. It's a potential uh, yeah. for freedom, for connection, for clarity, for wisdom that is said we all have, every single one of us. 
whatever we have been through, whatever we may yet go through, it is never, ever destroyed. It may be hidden, and it may be hard to find, hard to trust, but it is absolutely there. And that's like rock-bottom belief in, in all of those systems of psychology in the East. And so that's what we build a meditation practice on. That's what we build our efforts on, that they're not sort of desperate and hopeless. And, you know, there is something there that can be cultivated. And so I thought about it in that same way. It's not going to die, that light. If we neglect it, it'll be there. But if we actually nurture it, we can not just survive but flourish. So that that's a very precious part for me of the book is is that notion. It also reminded me of, you know, I'm, I'm next door to the Insight Meditation Society right oh, now, yeah. which we uh, founded in 1976. And in 1979, uh, we heard that Dalai Lama was coming to visit Amherst Mass, which is about 40 minutes away. And so we were very young and naive and bold, and we shot off this letter to the private office and said, hey, maybe he'd like to visit us too when he's around. And and we got an answer back saying, yes, he would. So he came here to the center, which was, of course, an amazing experience. And there are many stories about that day. And we gave him lunch and we gave him a tour. And when we bought the place, it was a Catholic novitiate. So it's got all these like social amenities, like a one-lane bowling alley. So he went bowling. Hmm. He did. Um we had at that time we had like a whole room full of bowling pins and things. And then we brought him into the meditation hall because we had a retreat that was ongoing. People had been sitting for about two weeks at that point. The Dalai Lama gave a talk and then he asked mm-hmm. for questions. And this young man raised his hand and he said, So he'd been meditating for like two weeks. And he said, I've decided I can't do it. I don't have any ability to change. I don't. I can't learn. I can't grow in these ways. Like maybe it's worked for 2,500 years, but it's not going to work for me. And the Dalai Lama just got this look on his face, which he gets even now when he's a little mystified by a question or a comment. Like, huh? So he looked at him and then he said, you're just wrong. You're wrong. And he went on to describe that conceptualization of our essential nature is having this potential and so on. It's really funny because all these people came up to me afterwards and said, that's bad pedagogy. You should never tell someone they're just wrong like that. The one person who said the Dalai Lama, right? Well, the one person who did not complain was the young man for whom it was really, really good, you know? And he said, wow, that was great. You know? Yeah. Consider the source. Right. Exactly. Wait. So the, I'm also curious. So the, so the Dalai Lama went bowling with you guys? <laughs> it was a one lane. He went by himself. We were watching though. Uh, and he did bowl though. Yeah. Wow. Is he good? You know, everyone asked that. They said, "How did he do it?" I said, "I can't remember. I was like in some state of what is bowling." <laughs> I love it. Was it videoed? <laughs> that's so cool. You know, that's, that's a so very cool. good question. We were yeah. following around with video cameras. We'll have to find. I'll have to find out. Cool. Um, I really, I know we both really like this notion of the window of tolerance mm-hmm. that Dan Siegel talks about. Can you talk a little about this notion of the window of tolerance and how we can widen that window? Well, you know, it's very similar to everything we've been talking about in that uh, if some state of dissatisfaction, discontent, uh, fear, something arises, we don't often necessarily put a lot of energy into 
of the space with which it's being received. You know, usually we pile on in some way. We judge ourselves. We call it bad. We think I should have gotten rid of this long ago. And it's not being received in a way that is very helpful. And so rather than focusing on the sheer arising of something and feeling we did wrong, you know, that it's there, uh, that becomes the question. And so, you know, there's some parable within Buddhism of um, something like um, if you take a teaspoonful of salt and you put it in a small glass of water because the vessel, the vehicle receiving it is so narrow the water will be deeply impacted. Whereas if you take that same teaspoonful of salt, and they would say like, or a chariot full of salt, and you dump it in a pond full of fresh water because of the sort of vastness, the openness of of the body of water, it's not going to be so strongly impacted. And just that way, some things are irritants, and sometimes we can do something about it, and we do. We try. As long as we can't. But... Regardless of that, the way it's being received, how much presence, how much balance, how much kindness is going to make a big difference. And that that's like our realm of creativity that we can always do something about. And so I was really yeah. uh, interested to read Dan's formulation of that as the window of tolerance. And, and so, uh, you know, when things are, we can fall off or that that window can be really narrowed in a variety of different ways. We can get numb, we can dismiss, uh, we can be too far back, we can be too into it, you know, so that we're consumed and overwhelmed. Um, and so it's it's really the same process. And some of it is is really reminding, I do it, you know, reminding myself, it's okay, this is what is, this is what's here. And, and starting from there. Rather than feeling, you know, I just can't believe I'm feeling this again. This shouldn't be here, or this means this, or this means that. I sometimes tell this story about teaching with my colleague, Joseph Goldstein, and somewhere, and Joseph and I were sitting in the kitchen having a cup of tea, and somebody came in in some distress and said to Joseph, I just had this terrible experience. So Joseph said, well, what happened? And he said, well, I felt all this tension in my jaw and I realized what an incredibly uptight person I am and how I always have been and I mm -hmm. always will be. And Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And he said, yes, and I've never been able to get close to people. It's never going to change. And Joseph said, you mean you felt a lot of tension in you your jaw? Tension. Yeah. And I was watching yeah. them go back and forth and back and forth. And, and no matter what the man said, Joseph would say, you mean you felt a lot of tension in your jaw? And then finally, Joseph said to him, why are you adding a miserable self-image to a painful experience? It's like painful enough to feel the tension in your jaw. But on top of that, now you're going to be alone for the rest of your life. You know, so we look for the add-ons. That helps you're a gonna lot. Be a, yeah. You're going to be what the rest of your life? You're going to be alone. You're going to be all alone forever, oh forever, my gosh. forever, forever. Oh, my God. Yeah, that, the, what they call that catastrophizing yeah. in the cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh-huh. Um, we we all do it to some degree. Well, I'll um, tell you, I really like this. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah, catastrophizing on. is one of my favorite topics, using that term. Oh, cool. Um, cool. Another colleague of mine, it's important. <laughs> Sylvia Borstein, uh, yeah. describes herself as a recovering catastrophizer. 
and in fact got into meditation practice because she was haunted by those thoughts. And you know, she's uh, 86 now, so her children are really adults. And she said, she just, she'll say this about herself, I'm the kind of person who will call one of my adult children and they don't answer the phone. So, of course, the worst must have happened. I never think maybe they're taking a shower or maybe they fell in love. They don't feel like talking to their mother. It must be the worst. So now she still has, I think, many of the same thoughts, perhaps not as intensely or with quite the frequency, but she has them for sure. And she can laugh at them or she'll know to check them out at any rate. It's not that bad things don't ever happen because they do, but, you know, instead of just flying away with that as an assumption. And so uh, I talked to her not too long ago and she said, I have a new mantra, a new saying I use in life. And I said, what is it? And she said, not every bus is going to end up in a ditch. And I think, okay, <laughs> I there you go. Yeah. I mean, people who are really neurotic, will hear that and be like, yeah, but a bus, some bus does end up in the ditch. Well, yeah. some bus does. I agree. Yeah, yeah. And sure. check it out, you know, before you're sure. Are you really sure? Yeah, I love that in your in your book. I love that. I love that. Um, Sojourner Truth has a quote. Life is a hard battle anyway. If we laugh and sing a little as we fight the good fight of freedom, it makes it all go easier. I will not allow my life's light to be determined by the darkness around me. I mean, that's that's just, uh, it doesn't get that much more beautiful than that, does it? I don't think it does. And I um, I feel especially attuned with that kind of statement because uh, so much of my work in recent years has been with people we call caregivers, you know, whether mm. in their personal life, their families, or in their professional lives, they're some ways on the front lines of suffering like a therapist, you know, or a teacher, a nurse, somebody like that, and or these days, you know, a lot of healthcare workers, because it, it starts to feel like that too selfish, I can't let in the joy that's ridiculous, look at how people are struggling, um, look at how my person is struggling, whoever that is, and yet, you know, there's clearly a tremendous rate of burnout and people are so depleted and we're all so tired anyway, I think. But it's hard. It's very, very hard and to allow oneself to really take in the joy and, and not, it's fleeting anyway, you know, you might as well enjoy it while it's there, uh, you know, and not sort of buy into, I don't deserve it, there's too much pain or this is laziness, this is the self-indulgence. It's really essential uh, to understand resilience or or a replenishment of oneself and so that particular statement i really i resonate with a lot me too i just love it i'm going to pin it pin it to my wall you know you you talk about dealing with illness and physical pain yeah how can you be with real physical pain i mean you touch on this throughout you touch on this already a lot throughout this interview but can you talk a little bit more about that especially like debilitating pain well, it's hard. I mean, I think that's the first thing to really recognize if you're talking about physical pain as well yeah. as emotional pain. But, you know, it. I would never want to be glib about it because uh, it's very difficult. And yeah. it, it brings up a lot of things. And But, you know, partly uh, something I didn't get to say before, but I was thinking uh, in terms of shame is there are a lot of social constructs that we also buy into. 
about who counts and who matters and what's right and what's wrong and yeah. um you know what should have us feel humiliated like not being able to afford something which always struck me as bizarre you know like maybe you you know are doing beautiful things with your money or maybe you're you know doing a job and it was it was the one that was available and you can't afford something lavish but you're you're fine. You know, you're like a good human being. You're having a good life. And, and, and yeah. yet society says, well, you're not as good as, you know, someone else. And it's so hard not to buy into all that stuff, but to understand that they're like constructs. They're, they're manufactured ideas that we're taught to believe, and we don't have to believe them. Hmm. Um, we can really step aside. And that's part of it, you know, is, is really determining on, on doing that. Uh, and pain figures into that a lot. And ability, you know, to uh, walk, for example, would be one example. And to understand that we don't, we don't have to buy into that in, in some way. And then, you know, working with, there are also tools of working with physical pain, working with emotional pain as well, that have a lot to do with almost deconstructing them rather than say it's physical pain feeling kind of this mass that's has taken over your body, feeling that, which is true, it's a moment of burning, it's a moment of twisting, it's a moment of pressure, it's a moment of this, it's a moment of that. And none of that sounds good, none of that feels good, but that's in a life system, right? Where yes. things are moving and changing and flowing. And as yes. one person said to me, who has a very severe chronic pain condition, using that approach, she said, I found the space within the pain. You know, and that's different than this kind of solid entity that is just so massive and impermeable and right. taken over. So, so it, yeah, it really can not, be effective. Yeah, that's really well. That's really profound. It's not trying to get rid of the pain or saying you love the pain. Yeah, no, that's that's I that's I. I feel like I need to sit with a lot of the things you say, Sharon Salzberg. Oh, we should hang <laughs> out together sit. more. I agree. I should sit well, with everything you say. I, you did notice I keep quoting you in the book. Well, okay. First of all, I will always love hanging out with you. So I just want to <laughs> respond to that. Uh, but secondly, I was so deeply touched that you found my work valuable enough to include it in your book at multiple junctions. It, it was always a surprise for me. So, and I had to do a double take because it's a very surreal experience. Like I was sitting at Cafe Gratitude in Venice today and I was reading your, your book in uh, preparation for a call today. And almost fell out of my chair. You know, I get to one of the pages that says, <laughs> yeah. cognitive psychologist Scott Barry Kaufman. It, yeah. It's just very weird. Yeah. It's, it's very surreal uh, seeing that. Anyway, long story short, thank you. I was very deeply touched. It meant a lot to me. You're welcome. Yeah. Well, your your work yeah. means a lot to me. It's, it's really tremendous. And there's something else I want to say about the pain because it just yeah. popped into my mind. One of the hardest, hardest things for many of us in life is receiving help. Hmm. You know, and this goes back to you know, my experience of working with caregivers who are givers, you know, and it's very hard to receive. And, and that's part of it is that it doesn't make you lesser. And, and to understand that dynamic a little better. I think my great model in that was really Ram Dass, um, who I'd yes. known from my very first meditation retreat in January of 1971. That's when wow. we met, you know, and <laughs> we're friends. And he was such a pioneer in my mind. He was the first person I knew from kind of a spiritual world who was working with prisoners, working with dying people, you know, 
was was really out there in terms of service and you know and then he had this massive stroke and was living in a wheelchair moved to uh, Maui and didn't essentially didn't leave it and he kept teaching even though his speech was quite affected and he had aphasia and so on and uh so once we were we were teaching this retreat together in Maui and um I was sitting in the back of like 300 people and and he was speaking he was on stage and and there were always lots of gaps, you know, and long pauses and things like that. And it was so telling to me because before the stroke, he was so kind of extraordinarily articulate. It's like he had a golden tongue. It was like a superpower, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then there were these pauses. And But he kept going. He just got up there and he kept doing it. So this one day he was giving a talk and he said that before the stroke, the hardest thing ever for him was to receive. And I thought that is so true. I know him all these years, you know, like he couldn't be complimented. He couldn't give him a birthday present, you know? And he said, it was so hard for me to receive. And he said, harder than the physical pain, harder than living in a wheelchair, harder than the difficulties with speech has been learning how to let people help me. And then he said, one of his great books, one of his very famous books, was called How Can I Help? And he said, now I feel like writing a book called How Can You Help Me? You know, and I think anyone who knew him toward the end of his life would say he was like made of light. He was made of love because some barrier inside had dissolved. And it's like the love could go out and it could come in. It could go out and it could come in. And it's a very difficult part of accepting a chronic pain condition is that we need to honor that flow of giving and receiving. Definitely, definitely. I, I found that the documentary about him, um, I think it was on Netflix, just so touching. And uh, I've never had it, uh, I never had the good fortune of meeting him, but that's, uh, I love that you two are friends. Yeah. Uh, it, makes, it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. You end your book on the notion of aspiration, and you say that aspiration powers the journey to making that's something real, living it more fully. What is that something that you're referring to? Well, I wrote the book in part because uh, it ended up being two years, and it will be three years in a row. I, well, that first year was when I was starting to write. Uh, I saw this thing on YouTube called Saturday Night Seder, and, uh, which I loved, and I think it's still up, and I still love it, which is, uh, you know, it was one of the first, I think, programs ever created where the writers were not in a room together because everything was done on Zoom. And, uh, so many people were in lockdown and it was brilliant, brilliant music and very funny and, and very uh, learned rabbis. I learned a lot watching it. And one of the things it reminded me of was that the symbolic meaning of the Seder, the symbolic meaning of Egypt, taking it totally away from geopolitics, uh, the word Egypt means the narrow place. The narrow straits, the narrow is a constrained place. And it's a journey from constriction to openness and freedom. Expansion. So I thought, oh, there it is. That's what I want to write about. And the Seder ends on a note of aspiration next year in Jerusalem. Again, taking it away from, from geopolitics. And in Saturday Night Seder, there's this fantastic quotation from Harvey Firestein, which I got permission to use, which was great. Uh, where he talks about, you know, to me, 
Jerusalem means a war, a world without war, a world without poverty, a world where no one is hungry, a world, you know, he describes that world. And next year, may we be there. And I've often said, I think we live in a time of blunted aspiration. We don't dream enough about what our happiness can look like, what community can look like, what this planet can look like. And it's hard, of course, uh, given, you know, some really grim realities, but um, it seems really important to me. And so because the book followed the arc of the Seder, I wanted to end with aspiration, which is how the Seder ends. And I end with Harvey Firestein, actually. <laughs> um, I love this book. I, uh, th th I, I, I think this might be my favorite one uh, that you've written. I'm so excited that you said that, really. I thought Real Love was my favorite one <laughs> you wrote, but you keep getting better and better. Thank you. Um, yeah, it really, uh, it's what just what I needed in my life right at this time. And I think it'd be a lot. I think it's just what a lot of people would need. So I really encourage people to go out and buy Real Life, The Journey from Isolation to Openness and Freedom. Um, I thought I could end with one of my favorite quotes from your book. I pulled it out uh, to save to the end of this interview. I've learned that freedom is not about moving away from or transcending all the pain of life in order to travel to an easeful, spacious realm of relief devoid of feeling. We cradle both the immense sorrow and the wondrousness of life at the same time. Butchered the quote a little bit, but it is beautiful. <laughs> and absolutely. Be but th maybe that was appropriate. Because, you know, the, the whole point of the quote is not everything has to be perfect. That's right. So uh, just such a beautiful quote. And this is such a beautiful book. And we have a beautiful friendship. We do. <laughs> so We do. I love I you. Know. I love you too. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it's been so great getting to know you and, and supporting each other. Uh, so all the best to you. And, th and thank you so much for, again, being on the Psychology Podcast. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. 
But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.